ask you a question just to think through this. Why would Paul care if people thought he was dying? Why would that be a trial? Who cares if anybody thinks that you're dying? If you're not, it doesn't matter. But it did matter. This was an extreme trial. And the answer is found in the next phrase in verse 9. As punished, yet not put to death. In the Jewish culture of Paul's day, hardship was seen as always being God's punishment. As we'll see today on Verse by Verse, that simply is not true. It may be discipline, or it may be something totally different. Thanks for listening. Pastor Steve Kreloff is our teacher on Verse by Verse, and he's the teaching pastor at Lakeside Community Chapel in Clearwater, Florida. Our main text is in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, as we think about the hindrances to the gospel. The Apostle Paul walked away from a lot of fame and honor when he accepted God's call on that road to Damascus. Here's Pastor Steve to talk about some of that. Paul had once been the brilliant and young, ambitious Pharisee known as Saul from the town of Tarsus. He had achieved considerable fame amongst his people. When he came into Jerusalem, they all knew about Saul of Tarsus. Everyone knew of Saul. He must have been in the Sanhedrin, which was the ruling religious body in Jerusalem. But when he came to faith in Christ, that all changed because he turned his back on the things that he he once thought were important and the things that he once thought were gained to him. He said, those things I consider like rubbish now. Whatever was gained to me is nothing, nothing. I've gained Christ. I don't need that other stuff. And he became, he went from being an elite religious somebody to a despised preacher of a despised and crucified Messiah. In the eyes of the Jewish religious elite, he was now ignored. He was unnoticed. There was a new generation of Jewish leaders who had come up and they didn't care about Paul anymore. He just wasn't a person worth listening to. Paul went from being a religious aristocrat to being a nobody in those circles. And how far the Apostle Paul had fallen from being a well-respected leader in the Jewish community to to what he was considered today, I think is illustrated in his first letter, 1 Corinthians 4. Let's go back there and you'll be amazed at how Paul and the other apostles were considered in the world. We admire them today. We, we name cities and churches after men like this. We write books about them. We, we put the word saint before them, but not so in Paul's day. Now, 1 Corinthians 4, I must tell you, Paul is being very sarcastic to the Corinthians. They were proud people. They wanted everybody to applaud them. They thought they were better than others. And Paul is, it's just oozing and dripping with sarcasm. You'll see what I mean by this. He says in verse 8, you are already filled. You become rich. You become kings without us. And indeed, I wish that you had become king so that we also might reign with you. He said, oh, you're you're listed as nobility. You think of yourself as so wonderful and, and kings. I, I wish we could be like that. It's just sarcastic. And then he says, here's, here's the way we're considered. Here's the way all Christians are looked upon by society, but especially the apostles. For I think God has exhibited us apostles last of all as men condemned to death because we have become a spectacle to the world, both to angels and to men. He said, everybody's looking at us. We've been put on exhibit by God, and here's what they see. We're fools for Christ's sake, but you're prudent in Christ. We're weak, but you're strong. You're distinguished, and we're without honor. To this present hour, we're both hungry 
and we're thirsty and are poorly clothed and are roughly treated and are homeless. And we toil working with our own hands. When we're reviled, we bless. When we're persecuted, we endure. When we're slandered, we try to conciliate. We have become as the scum of the world, the dregs of all things, even until now. So I said Paul was just being sarcastic as far as you Corinthians think you're so great. Let me tell you what we're what we are really like. That's how far Paul had fallen. He was considered by the general populace as worthless, as someone condemned, as a fool, as weak. He said we are the scum of society. No nobility. No one uh, writing books about you. No one naming cities after you. He said this is what we are. This is what we become. Now, let me tell you something, that this is a wonderful truth for us to get hold of, because if you are determined to follow Christ, you'll be thought of that way as well. You will not be respected for your Bible knowledge. You'll not be considered someone who is so well versed in evangelical truth. You will not be considered like that. You will not be respected by the world. And some of you face that even in even in your own home where you're married to someone who's not a believer and you may be uh, esteemed in, in our church and you may have a, a position of responsibility, but at home it's sort of like you don't know what you're talking about. You don't, you don't, you don't have anything to say of, of value. And you witness to people uh, and, and they don't care what you have to say. Who are you? Who are you to tell me about this? Listen, that's reality. We are not thought of highly in, in the world's eyes. And, and Jesus told us, he warned us, He said, woe to you when all men speak well of you. Why? Because if everybody's speaking well of you, he means the world. If everybody in the world speaking well of you, obviously you're compromising the truths of Scripture because the world hates God and hates his word. So you can't have everybody speak well of you. We'd like that, but that's not reality. You will be considered as a religious nobody, just a dinosaur from a past era that that passed away and gave way to a more enlightened religious thinking considered nobody i remember witnessing to my mom years ago and one of many times that i was sharing with her about christ and she said to me she said Stephen, let me ask you this if this is true if what you're telling me is true then tell me this why don't our rabbis believe this you know what she was really saying she was saying i love you but who are you who are you We have men who study, of course, they're not studying the scriptures, they're studying commentaries about the scriptures, but in her mind, the thinking is, look, we have learned rabbis who study this stuff all day long. In fact, that's all they do. And you, 18 years old, a nobody, are telling me that this is the truth. You found the truth? Well, that's really what she was saying. Who, Who do you think you are to stand against the religious nobility of our belief system. See, this is really a blow to our pride. It is a blow to our pride, but it's a good blow to our pride. It's a good blow. Let me take you to Hebrews chapter 11. I just want you to see how we, we cannot be respected by the world. We, 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 so many Christians try to be, and they want the world's approval. It's just not going to happen. It really shouldn't happen. It shouldn't happen. But Hebrews chapter 11, after explaining... And listing the, the writer here lists about the wonderful men and women of faith who trusted God. Then he speaks about others who were not highly esteemed. 
And and notice what he says in verse 36. He said, and others experience mockings. These are Old Testament men and women of faith. Mockings and scourgings. Yes, also chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. Could you imagine that? We believe tradition says that Isaiah was put in a hollow trunk of a tree and sawn in two. They were tempted. They were put to death with the sword. They went about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, ill-treated. And then I love, this is the verse, men of whom the world was not worthy, wandering in deserts and mountains and caves and, and holes in the ground. These were great men, and the world didn't even know it. The world couldn't even give them uh, proper homes to live in. They wandered in caves and deserts. And now we look back and we we admire them and esteem them, but in their own day they were not esteemed. They were not admired. And that's the way it's going to be with us. And you need to come to grips with that and not try to impress people of the world. If they're impressed with you, something's wrong with your message or lifestyle. So Paul was considered by the religious establishment as just unknown and insignificant. They didn't recognize him as the brilliant theologian that he was. The greatest theologian that has ever lived, the Apostle Paul. Even Peter said in Second Peter, there are some things in Paul's writings that are hard to understand. We would say amen to that. Even Peter admitted that he had a difficult time grasping some of the depth of Paul's writings. But the truth of the matter is, though he was unknown, notice verse 9 again in Second Corinthians 6, he says, as unknown yet well-known. Paul was well-known. That's the paradox. Paul may not have been popular with the masses of his day, but he was very well known to the entire Christian community. There was not a Christian uh, in that day who had not heard of the Apostle Paul. Church planter, pastor, inspired writer, apostle, everybody knew of Paul in that era. Every Christian had heard of Paul. His name was well known over all the Roman Empire within the various churches. But even more important, and I think this is the major point that he's bringing out, even more important than people knowing him is the truth that God knew him. I think that's the intent here. Unknown by people, but known by God. Well known. Well known by God. If others considered him as obscure and unknown, Paul endured his lack of recognition because God knew him. And there are statements in the New Testament that would strengthen that claim that that's what he was saying here. For example, he wrote to Timothy in 2 Timothy 2.19. He said, the Lord knows those who are his. And he doesn't mean the Lord just knows about them. God knows everything. But the word for know means uh, intimacy, means personal knowledge, means relationship. The Lord knows in a personal way those that belong to him. In John 10.14, Jesus speaking about being the good shepherd said, I am the good shepherd. And I know my own, and my own know me. I have an intimate relationship with every sheep. I'm known by them, and I know them. I know them thoroughly. We have a relationship. As Philip Hughes in his commentary on Second Corinthians said, he wrote, to be unknown to the world matters nothing. It's a great statement. It doesn't matter. Who cares? It is to be known of God as his own that is all important. That's absolutely right. doesn't matter if you're unpopular today. doesn't matter if your family thinks that you're a religious kook. It doesn't matter. What matters is that God knows who you are and knows you as his child and you know him 
and someday you're going to be in his presence, and then all the popularity won't matter at all. So what if they think of you as a someone who who's, doesn't know what he's talking about? It's all right. God knows you. Listen, you may be looked down upon by people, even, as I said, family members. It's just being a nobody. When you speak, though, you have a wealth of knowledge. They may consider you as just a, a religious kook. You don't know what you're talking about. You may be well-respected in the Christian community. You may be admired in Christian circles. But what is ultimately important is that God knows you, knows you intimately, and recognizes you as his child who knows Christ and the truth. So with that understanding, we endure. That's how Paul endured. God knew him. didn't matter if anybody else knew him. It wasn't important. Popularity is fleeting anyway. Who cares? You face the dishonor of being thought of as religiously insignificant by knowing that God knows you. God knows you. There's a second contrast between Paul, how he was incorrectly viewed by people and the truth about him. And it's mentioned in the second phrase in verse 9. He says, as dying, yet behold, we live. As men viewed Paul's constant sufferings, it appeared to them, especially the false teachers, that Paul was always on the verge of dying. And I understand that. It did look like that. In Lystra, he was uh, nearly stoned to death. In Philippi, he was beaten with rods and placed in painful stocks. At Jerusalem, he was attacked by an angry mob and would have been killed had not the Roman soldiers rescued him. At Jerusalem, uh, we said he was attacked and and then placed in jail. In 2 Corinthians, and we looked at this months ago, chapter 1, verse 8 and 9, he tells the Corinthians that while he was in Asia, meaning Asia Minor, he was so close to death that he was sure he wasn't getting out of there alive. He said, I passed sentence on myself. From a human standpoint, it appeared like I was going to die right here. So he did appear to be a man who was on the verge and brink of death due to his uh not only the risks and dangers and persecutions, but probably his ill health. I would suspect that Paul, though not an old man by our standards, probably looked very old. Yet he was very much alive. Notice verse 9, he says, We only look like we're dying, yet behold, we live. The reason Paul lived was because God constantly sustained him. Constantly sustained him. Now, let me ask you a question just to think through this. Why would Paul care if people thought he was dying? Why would that be a trial? Who cares if anybody thinks that you're dying? If you're not, it doesn't matter. But it did matter. This was an extreme trial. The answer is found in the next phrase in verse 9. This next phrase clarifies this present phrase. He says, as punished, yet not put to death. Those who viewed Paul as dying believed that his constant sufferings were God's punishment For his sins. That's the trial. They interpret his physical troubles as leading to the brink of death as God's outpouring of his wrath on this man. They said he deserves it for telling us he's an apostle, for writing all this stuff. When he knows he's a phony, we know that God is judging him. That's why he suffers so much. Now, folks, that's a that's a rough trial to endure. And, And, you know, really, we hear this at times from charismatic teachers who say that if you're sick, it must be because of your sin. How cruel to tell Johnny Erickson Tata that uh, she broke her neck because of some sin in her life and that she must be healed by God. How cruel. But in essence, that's uh, they're telling Paul, and that's the same thing here. Paul is suffering because of his, his own sin. They concluded that God was judging him for his iniquity. God was angry with Paul, and this is what happens to those who 
who do this kind of stuff because he suffered so much. Surely they thought if, if he was a real man of God, he would not suffer so much. But the truth about Paul was that the sufferings were not the evidence of divine displeasure. He wrote, notice verse 9 again, as punished, yet not put to death. Yet not put to death. Though Paul suffered greatly and people thought that he was being punished for his sin, yet he wasn't being put to death by God. God didn't take his life until years later. And he actually explained this to the Corinthians in chapter 4. Let's go back to this letter to chapter 4. Verse 8, this clarifies what Paul is talking about. Just the opposite of what the Corinthians, uh, or at least the false teachers, accused him of. Verse 8, he says, we're afflicted in every way, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not despairing. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Always carrying about in the body the dying of Jesus. Let's stop there for a moment. Paul was always in the process of suffering for Jesus Christ. But God didn't let him die until he was ready. Ready to take him home to heaven. And that was years later. Why? Why didn't he die then? Why Why so much suffering? The answer is in the last phrase in verse 10. So that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our body. In other words, Paul's constant deliverances from death made it clear that Jesus was alive and at work in his life. God kept rescuing Paul. Paul was like an object lesson of of God's constant sustaining of his servant. That he's alive, he's well, he's operating in Paul's life, and that nobody can take Paul's life apart from God's approval of it and God's allowing it to happen. God sustained him. His accusers were absolutely wrong. God kept rescuing Paul to demonstrate his providential care of his servants. Sufferings weren't acts of divine displeasure. Not at all. They were opportunities for the Lord to demonstrate that he was alive and able to sustain Paul from the attacks of his enemies. Paul's like an object lesson. You can't kill this guy because God keeps keeps sustaining him. Now, let me offer a brief word of, of application here. We have to be very careful in our own lives, unlike Paul's enemies, that we don't interpret all suffering as God's punishment for either some sin in our life or sin in somebody else's life. We have to be careful. It may be that that God is using some suffering in your life as a form of discipline. This does happen. We don't want to negate that. That that does happen. There are times in our lives God does discipline us. I wouldn't call it punishment. A judge punishes us for our sin. A father corrects us for our own good. We will never as Christians be punished for our sin. Christ was punished in our place. But as a loving father, if we get out of line, he will bring discipline into our lives to bring us back. That's the point of Hebrews chapter 12 to tell us that if you are a legitimate son and daughter, if you really are a child of God's and you can't get away with sin, he'll discipline you for your own good. Now, how do you know if that's taking place? How would you know if there's sin in your life and God's discipline is applied because of it? Very simple. Very simple. You'll know if it's discipline because God will bring conviction of your sin along with the discipline. You won't have to figure it out. You won't have to get introspective and go, well, what must be in my life? Let me think about it. That will lead to depression. That when you look within and you try to figure it out, and you'll come up with things that probably aren't even true. You'll heap guilt upon yourself that's not even there. Shouldn't be there. If God disciplines you for sin, it's his responsibility to tell you, and he will tell you as you read the word and you know what's wrong in your life, he'll bring conviction to your life. It's not a guessing game. 
Christians don't have to figure it out very far when they, they don't have to think about it much when God deals with sin in their lives. They know it. But be careful that you don't become like Job's friends who were sure that his sufferings were brought on by some serious sin in his life. They were absolutely positive about that. But they, you know what? They didn't know what they were talking about. They spoke dogmatically, but they were dogmatically wrong. They looked at Job and they said, obviously, there's something that you're not telling us. Why would you suffer like this? You've sinned against the Almighty. But you know what the purpose of Job's sufferings were? This man, far from being the worst sinner on the earth, he was the most godly man. And the purpose of Job's sufferings were designed to bring God glory by showing Satan that genuine followers of the Lord follow him regardless of how good life is. That's that's the point. Remember, Satan said to, to God, he said, God said, you see my servant Job and what a righteous man he is. And Satan, in essence, said, sure. He, he says he loves you because look at his life. Who wouldn't? The man is wealthy. The man has blessings. You take that away from him, you'll see he'll curse you to your face. And that's that's what the book is about. And then when when Job had some physical suffering happen to him in terms of material goods, Satan then said, well, sure, it's okay because he's got his health. If a man has his health, he's going to praise God. Take his health away and you'll see that he'll curse you to your face. And so that's what the book is about. God is is showing all of us that there are not fair weather disciples. True disciples don't praise the Lord only in the sunshine. They pra- They praise him when the clouds, dark clouds hover over. You know, it's the same thing that Jesus dealt with in John chapter 9. Remember, there was a, a man who had been born blind that the disciples and Jesus came upon. In John chapter 9, the disciples said this, and they didn't know what they were talking about either, but this they, they were people of, out of their own culture. This was the Jewish way of thinking back then. They said, Lord, who sinned in this man's case? Was it his parents or was it the man himself? I mean, obviously, if a man is born blind, they said, he it must be attributed to some sin. And Jesus said, It's not sin at all. It's not personal sin at all. That's not why. But he's blind so that I might heal him and he might this might give God glory for the glory of God. And that was exactly the case with Paul's sufferings. God received the glory because though beaten, he wasn't put to death. Because why? The Lord was sustaining him, sustaining him and proving that he was alive and active in Paul's life. Paul knew this, and that's how he endured all of his sufferings and the erroneous opinions of others about his sufferings. And you know what, folks? This is how we endure people's false interpretations of suffering in our lives as well. You may have unsaved relatives and loved ones that will say when something really difficult happens in your life, well, they deserved it. They're preaching a false message, and and you may have that. But you know what? You can endure because you know the truth. You know the truth that, that uh, what the Bible says about sufferings. and You see God working in your life, sustaining you in the midst of your suffering. That's the truth. Indeed, we know that truth. It may be hidden from others right now, but on the last day, God will make it known. I'm glad you are here today for Verse by Verse with Pastor Steve Kreloff of Lakeside Community Chapel in Clearwater, Florida. Find out more about Lakeside at lakesidechapel.com or call the office at 727-441-1714. I'll give you that number again. It's 727-441-1714. Verse by Verse is listener supported. We have giving information on our website, versebyverseradio.org. We're thankful for the friends whose generosity helps us stay on the air. And don't forget about the message archive where you can stream or download any of our previous classes. 
That's versebyverseradio.org. I'm Jerry Peterson. I recently came across an interesting quote about joy. It's from a man in the third century who was anticipating his own death. He wrote, It's a bad world, an incredibly bad world, but I have discovered in the midst of it a quiet and holy people who have learned a great secret. They have found a joy which is a thousand times better than any pleasure of our sinful life. They are despised and persecuted, but they care not. They are masters of their souls. They have overcome the world. These people are the Christians, and I am one of them. Next time on Verse by Verse, Pastor Steve will wrap up this series about hindrances to the gospel as we look into a paradox. The Apostle Paul, burdened by the cares of the churches, pummeled with false accusations, physically beaten, thrown into prison, and even facing death, was joyful. How is that possible? <laughs> 